Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Episode 10, Monumental. 10 songs. That's enough for a playlist. We should make a playlist. We should make a playlist. Yeah, I agree with that. This is a great time to do that. The song that we are doing today will add uh, a very different flavor to the playlist than we've had before. Okay. Uh, this, I think, is a fun one. I think it's one you'll know. I think you'll, you'll definitely know a lot of the bands around this scene. I think you'll be excited Ooh. to talk about this time in music history. Okay. Um, That's exciting. Let's just jump right in. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. No, it's drum beat. Oh. <laughs> yeah, man. Dude, suit riot. We gotta get a little bit to the, the verse here. Side whispering in the trees, it's two cities and they're only pats and chains and swinging hands. Who's your daddy? Yes, I am. Oh, that's right. We are going back to the Suits swing riot. revival of the mid to late 1990s. Uh, they uh, that this band name uh, gives me the heebie jeebies. <laughs> you know what? I we're, we're gonna get to the band name, the band being the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Ugh. And I don't think that I, for lack of better terms, appreciated the name when I was younger. And I don't know that I ever appreciated it even later in life because I probably didn't think about the band. But while looking at this, you know, researching this band, I, I, it really came full force. I was like, wow, this is a fucking awful band name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will get to it. We will talk about the band name in a bit. There's a lot of chatter about it, obviously. Uh, it does feature prominently on a lot of music publications list of worst band names ever. And for yeah, obvious it's, reasons, it's a, it's a horrific band name. Yes. But I don't, you know, when I was younger, I didn't recognize it. And I'm sure that there were many kids their age who were asking their parents for the chair and pop and daddy's disc for Christmas. And it, it made them cringe. Yeah. And it's funny because they ask for the disc and then the music sounds like their grandpa's music, which is, yeah, exactly. It's a, it does not fit at all with the image. I mean, if if uh, the Bloodhound Gang's name was the Cherry Pop and Daddy, they'd be like, well, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> you know how to pick them. What's your, your take on the swing revival of the 90s? I remember it very vividly. Who's the other band? Uh, big Bad Voodoo Daddy was the other big That was a big swing one. Swing band. Squirrel Nut Zippers were pretty big around this time. Squirrel Nut Zippers were big. You had Brian Setzer Orchestra. I mean, the ska and punk scene was all kind of around it the real big fish and mighty mighty bostones pie tasters it was all kind of in that vein that's what i was about to say is i felt like a lot of the swing bands were like former punk bands or ska white dudes playing black music yeah yeah 
kind of, I feel like the swing revival is kind of, kind of similar to like, uh, the rockabilly culture. <clears throat> well, I guess you mentioned Brian Setzer, like Stray Cat. I mean, that stuff's kind of punk too. It's really weird. Yeah. It touches on a lot of that. We'll go back a little bit. The swing revival is obviously a revival of the big band jazz swing eras of the, the 1930s and 40s. And there's a blog called Just the Swing that I think does a good recap of how we got from the 30s and 40s to the 80s and 90s of the revival here. And they're quoted saying, out of early rhythm and blues and jazz evolved ska, which then evolved into Rocksteady by 1967, then into reggae and finally punk. By the beginning of the 1980s, new wave punk had become the latest pop trend. Among the many new wave bands, however, emerged a few bands playing strains of rockabilly and jump blues and a few bands reintroducing the brass and reed instruments to pop music. Notably among the rockabilly bands were the Stray Cats, led by Brian mm. Setzer, which, you know, again, our listeners will recognize as Brian Setzer Orchestra. Uh, their cover of Louis Prima's uh, Jump Drive and Whale is like synonymous with this swing revival of the 90s. But it's 1989 where yep. this revival like, really gets started. Uh, seeing the formation of many of the scenes, prominent figures, uh, the World Crown Review, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Uh, both of them were close to the traditional jump blues and rockabilly. Uh, then we had a couple that I didn't recognize, uh, Lave Smith and her Red Hot Skillet Liquors, <laughs> who showcased vocal jazz and blues. And then from Eugene, Oregon, we have the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. They're from Eugene? They're from Eugene, Oregon. Wow. So the cher- Cherry, this is hard to say many times in a row, the Cherry Poppin' Daddies, we'll call them the Daddies, were formed by lead singer Steve Perry. Uh, Steve Perry? Yeah, so Steve Perry, uh, not like, the Steve Perry that many of us <laughs> would recognize. Uh, yeah, when Steve Perry left Journey, he uh, started a, a swing revival band. <laughs> this would be interesting. No, Steve Perry, our Steve Perry here, uh, grew up with, in Binghamton, New York. But he moves to Eugene, Oregon for college, where he meets a bassist, Dan Schmidt. Both of them are huge punk and jazz fans. Uh, and they met, I guess they met in college, but they quickly dropped out of college. Upright bassist, I'm guessing. That's actually a good question. I imagine if he wasn't at the time, yeah, he definitely was he becomes one. in the daddies. He becomes one. He puts one. on a fedora with a feather and becomes one. It, it was a trend. Uh, but they are both huge punk and jazz fans. Uh, this is the, the 1983. They drop out of college and they start a punk trio called the Jazz Greats, which evolved into the Paisley Underground styled garage rock group St. Huck, which lasted from 1984 to 1987. Mm-hmm. This is during the rise of grunge, especially in Oregon. Oh, yeah. So we've got the rise of, of the you know, Nirvanas of the world. So there, from some of the quotes I read from Perry, it seemed like what they wanted to do was kind of the complete opposite of what was happening in the grunge scene at the time. They wanted to make songs that were a music that was like very energetic, that was dance forward, that was positive. Uh, so mm-hmm. they were coming up at a time when they were being punk for punk's sake and doing the opposite of what everyone in their, their music circles right. were, were doing. He's quoted saying, my conception of punk was doing whatever the hell you wanted as long as it had vitality and wasn't overly stupid, <laughs> something exploratory and experimental. 1987, then they started a new band called Mr. Wiggles. Wow. And then quickly, in 1988, changed their name to the Cherry Poppin' Daddies, okay. which apparently is derived from jive slang that the members had overheard on a vintage race record. 
race records being 78 RPM phonographs marketed to African Americans during the 1920s and 1940s. So Perry is quoted in 98 saying the band name definitely doesn't mean what people think if they giggle when they hear it. We had a show and needed a name. Being punk, we wanted an up yours name like the butthole surfers. It came from the lyrics of a race record. Now it's our cross to bear and explain in every interview. I assure you, we don't cruise high schools for dates. Okay. Didn't even really need to bring that part up. <laughs> Their name is the Cherry Poppin' Daddy. So you know what? They kind of do. They kind of need to explain themselves. Yeah, I guess they do. Uh, okay. Well, if it doesn't mean what you think it means, they still appropriated it. Fair. True. He is quoted in 2000 saying, it's probably the most heinous name in the history of rock. <laughs> it's a lot harder to understand the name now that the counterculture mentality has faded. But in that time, the idea was you want to choose a band name that would attract other punk rock kids and keep others at bay. Pop culture is trying to offend no one. We didn't come out of that. We came out of the loyal opposition. We came out of punk movement. How can I deny that? I started this band a long time ago. We just used the name. We didn't know that in 10 years, we'd turn it into some happy, peppy, feel-good thing. There's some convoluted logic here. There is. Uh, as I mentioned, the name is featured on many lists of worst band names ever. VH1 called it quite possibly the most offensive band name ever, made all the more ridiculous by the fact that these outwardly bragging virgin sexers had a completely innocuous mainstream hit song, which goes to your point. <laughs> this is the last thing you would expect a band that sounds like this to be named. Yep. Blender Magazine placed the Daddies in third place on a bracket chart of the worst band names, while in 2013, Rolling Stone included the Daddies on their list of the 13 dumbest band names in history. The Rolling Stone article includes band names like Hoobastank, which is one of my least favorite bands of all time, as well as Dave Matthews Band, one of my favorite bands of all time, a band called Anal Cunt, Oh, yeah. A band called Dogs Die in Hot Cars. Yeah. And lastly, the Beatles. What? <laughs> I'll read you what they said about the Cherry Pop and Daddies. They say, where to even begin with this one? Much like the simple fact that some dogs die in hot cars, some daddies do horrible things to their daughters. Oh, my God. It's just about the most heinous act on the planet short of murder. It may be the last thing anyone wants to visualize when listening to music. Sure, the band took their name from an old blues record. Also, they don't specifically say whose cherries the daddies are popping, but it's inadvertently implied. That's <sighs> enough said about this team. Deep sigh. For the Beatles, they make a good point. On the Beatles, on a side note, on the Beatles, they say, before you start writing furious comments, stand back and think about this stupid band name. The Beatles is a dumb pun. That's all. They took the idea of naming themselves after an insect like the crickets, but changed the spelling for a pun or musical beats. It's as simple as that. There's no deep hidden meaning. There's no wisdom here. Just a pun that might have provoked a very mild chuckle back in 1962. We accept it because we've heard it 50,000 times and they're the best group in history, but it doesn't mean that they have, that they don't have a stupid name. I mean, the Beatles are so ubiquitous that when I see the, the word for the bug or the car, I think it looks wrong. But it's kind of like the Foo Fighters, who they say is like, it's a fucking terrible name, I, but even Dave Grohl says he hates that name. Right, right. But I think it's great. <laughs> the meaning behind it's cool. Uh, the name was not the only controversy from the, the, this band, the Daddies. Oh, big surprise. The band that named themselves Cherry Pop and Daddies have other controversies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so early on, in the early 90s here, uh, their performances often included flamboyant costumes, go-go dancers, phallic stage scenery, prop-heavy skits, and choreographed dance numbers. Perry 
then performing under his mad scientist stage persona of MC Large Drink, would regularly engage in absurdist shock rock stunts, such as mock uh. cru- cru- crucifixion, flag burning, and one of the band's stage props was uh, known as the Dildo Rado, or the Dildozer, a riding lawnmower modified to look like a human penis that mimicked ejaculation by shooting colorful fluids from its tip. What is this, Guar, but jazz? Oh, Guar does come back. Jazz Guar. Guar does come back <laughs> in the story, so great <laughs> reference right there. Uh, I, I did find the video. Uh, it took a lot of searching. And when you imagine, when you search Cherry Poppin' Daddy's ejaculation, Cherry Poppin' Daddy's dildo, riding dildo, uh, it was hard to find. It took me a lot of searching to do, and I found <laughs> a ton of stuff, as you'd imagine. So let me show you the video, at least. Uh, I'm going to fast forward to the point where the riding lawnmower penis comes out. What, so, what kind of ads are you being served? Oh, it's going to be going to be weird. Let's see. We're watching Flavilla Thatch versus the viral garbage men. So this is one of their performances from 1992. And there you will see the giant penis come out from stage left. They sound like uh, Mr. Bungle. I mean, that would have made some sense for the time slap bass saxophone uh oh my god there it is, there it is. it's like it's like um confetti it's like confetti coming out of the penis i feel like these guys would have gotten along with the, the bloodhound game man slap bass was such a thing in rock at the time 100 where did that come from he kind of has like an anthony kiedis thing going on a bit yeah not wearing a shirt so the band grew a lot of ire from certain groups, as you'd imagine. The giant penis, the fake crucifixion, and uh, flag burning. I actually don't find any of those things offensive. I just find their band name offensive. I think there was just a lot of, like, <laughs> they were very, like, performance-heavy on stage. And, yeah, flag burning. I didn't, I didn't find any of that, but a lot of groups felt like they were sexist and misogynistic, and I'm sure, I'm sure they aspects were. of their show was yeah. that. Yeah. Perry disputed such claims, defending the controversial elements as misinterpreted satire. But many groups continued to protest outside their shows, okay. boycotted artist uh, venues that, that booked them, uh, boycotted... They were big enough where people gave a shit about this stuff? I mean, there are a lot of people at that show. Well, yes. I think because we're talking about Eugene, Oregon, at that time where... Yeah. Super granola, college town protests are common yeah and i think oregon you have like oregon's known for like those it's opposing viewpoints where you have people who are like very into the counterculture especially i'm sure in the early 90s where you have like your countercultural punks who don't give a fuck and you have your liberal hippies who very much do give a fuck so i'm sure that both groups just want to be left alone yeah and i'm sure that played (laughs) out here Protests, boycotts against venues, boycotts against any newspapers that gave them positive reviews. The Daddies initially refused to change their name on the grounds of artistic freedom, but a number of venues refused to book them due to negative publicity. The band was temporarily banned from Wow Hall, where they had previously served as the house band. (laughs) So the group at one point did bow to community (laughs) pressure, and they performed in that area. They performed under the Daddies or the Bad Daddies. The Bad Daddies is actually a pretty good band name. Uh, a lot better than Cherry Poppin' Daddies. However, the band still performed under the name the Cherry Poppin' Daddies while they toured outside of Eugene and, and the Oregon area. Once they stopped being like very 
annoying and flamboyant on stage and stopped the theatrics. A lot of the protests died down and they went back to using the name everywhere, Mm -hmm. including in Eugene, Oregon. I like how they later have this story of like, it's not offensive. We got it from an old record. And it's like looking at what they were doing on stage at the time. It was very much meant to be offensive. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think (laughs) you would imagine that at some point there'd be growth between 1989 and 1997, which we're coming to, you would think at some point they would decide to change their name. No, I mean, I think in general, in pop culture, in especially misogyny, uh, the Woodstock 99 documentary is top of mind for everybody. That documentary really made me remember that I feel like in the 90s, this like age of excess and kind of like the, the Bill Clinton era, we had regressed in a lot of ways that I think helped usher punk and hip-hop had like ushered in like this kind of um self-awareness and then in the 90s it just got destroyed yeah i think it's interesting the the woodstock documentary definitely touches on on god damn it see delco woodstock documentary touches on 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 (laughs) anyway the woodstock documentary touches on the fact that (laughs) from grunge came this immediate slapback to like you're saying like we lost ground and, and became a much more misogynistic and sexist culture and that plays out in the skunk uh ska punk skunk uh skunk there you go why did we call it that, that ska punk why, why did we call it that uh that plays out here and especially in the swing revival because a lot of articles that i read when talking about the swing swing revival talks about how like out of the grunge movement everyone's very like you know staring at their toes shoegazing style mm-hmm. music they wanted to have energetic right. dance music. Yeah. That's where we kind of we came back from that. So I think there were positives and negatives of this immediate slapback from from the grunge scene. I mean, think about sublime lyrics. Like it's it's yeah. the complete opposite of Nirvana, but that's what was popular right after Nirvana. Yeah. I think that often happens to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What would you get to drink over there? I'm drinking a gin and tonic today. It's a little Ooh. earlier for our typical recording session so i wanted a little lighter but uh i'm, I'm out of my sierra nevada i just re-upped on sierra nevada uh this week speaking of it being a little earlier i'm drinking one of sierra nevada's new hard kombuchas oh which flavor you got it's called strange beast is their new hard kombucha it's the blueberry acai and sweet basil you said it was good you texted me the other day it's really good yeah i really like it kind of got a little wine thing going on like a blueberry wine. So we're, we're both drinking something slightly botanical. This might be the only time that we discuss a song that is a hit because it was essentially featured on a greatest hits album. Whoa. Like uh, yeah. Mary Jane's Last Dance. Mm-hmm, exactly. The Daddies were primarily a part of the West Coast ska punk scene, but you really couldn't mm-hmm. pin them to any one genre because they brought a lot of influences. But they were essentially a ska and punk band. And over the early 90s, they continued to tour the country. They were slowly building up a fan base. At the same time, in the early 90s, we really start to see the swing revival blossoming out of the West Coast. It certainly started more in like LA and San Francisco areas, but it started like rockabilly car culture. I feel like that's all synonymous with Southern California. Totally. But in the early 90s, we see bands forming out of states like Michigan, Texas, all the way to North Carolina, where we get the Squirrelnut Zippers who were very influential in this mm-hmm. scene. trained Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis, who have gone on to current fame. That's right, yeah. 
The first song to hit the charts from a swing revival band was the Squirrel Nut Zippers with their song Hell. Uh-huh. That hit the Billboard charts later in 1996. That song's a jam. The song is a jam. It's a great song. And that effectively becomes the first real hit of the swing revival season. So I read a lot about the early swing scene, and a lot of folks credit some of these young bands, but also pop culture items like The Mask was, was featured a little bit of, of swing mentality. Uh, a lot of zoot suits in that movie. A lot of zoot suits in that movie. And then definitely the tides really started to turn in 1996 with the release of the movie Swingers, which I took a page from your book and actually watched this weekend. Great movie. A great movie. I'd never seen it all the way through. I loved it. It was amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a good it's a good movie. Uh, John Favreau and his most neurotic. Yes. And Vince Vaughn in, in like an early iteration of, of who Vince Vaughn would really fully become. It features the Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Right. Yeah, they're in, they're in that movie. Yeah, but... That was 96. During this time, we've got Swing Revival coming up. We've got the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Poppin' left and who right. Who are, again, like I said, primarily a West Coast ska punk band, but they do have some swing songs. And so as this new genre is really blossoming, they decide to put together, quickly put together, a compilation album of only their swing tracks from their first three albums. Ah. And they recorded four new songs, including Zoot Suit Riot to round out a full-length album. What label were they on at, at this point? They had their own label called Space Age Bachelor Pad Records. Interesting. And they released their swing album called Zoot Suit Riot, The Swinging Hits of the Cherry oh, yeah. Pop and Daddies. I do remember. I thought that was just like a tongue-in-cheek thing. It kind of is, but it's you know it's a sample, it's a compilation of, of their swing songs, and they call them swing hits. So right. it's kind of a, huh. a greatest hits, if you will. So they released this in March of 1997. And because Indep- they were touring independently, so, independently, wow. And I read a couple articles saying that it sounded like, as the rise of swing is happening, people who are have been coming to the daddy's shows and and start coming to the daddy daddy shows, right? They want to hear more swing, and they're getting more requests at the merch table for like, hey, which album has gotcha. these swing songs on them? So that's why they quickly put together this album, so they have something to to sell at the merch table to say like, oh, this is our swing album. Is this the time in which a lot of the swing dance groups are starting up again, like like at colleges and at, and even high schools, little groups that are into the dance style? It has to be because I did read a little bit talking about how in the early 90s, while you have some of these bands coming up on the West Coast, specifically L.A., you also have a lot of young teenagers starting to do swing dancing again and i read somewhere that there was a group of like swedish teenagers i guess that ended up finding like during this time early 90s people were seeking out some of the old swing dancers of fame okay from the 30s and 40s and like meeting with them learning new dances so this is certainly happening along with the music trend in la and san francisco and i'm sure that's blossoming at this point you know with the music it's blossoming across the country as well. Yeah, I'm I'm imagining it kind of came from like little internet communities. Yeah. I'd have to assume so. And it's still it's still a thing. Well it must be because sure. you and I were in college like, you know, ten, fifteen years ago and there was a swing dance club. That was in the you know, really? late two thousands. Oh yeah. At at JMU. Yeah, they used to perform on the quad. Oh. I'm vaguely remember this maybe. And uh yeah, they wore like fedoras and shit. Oh. 
Sure, why not? Right. <laughs> so this album, this swinging greatest hits, comes out, and uh, it, it immediately starts making an impact for the Cherry Pop and Daddies. They're selling uh, upwards of 4,000 copies a week while they're on tour. And this draws the attention of their friends in Real Big Fish, ah. who get them a meeting with their label, Mojo Records. Real Big Fish is, uh, for those that don't know, uh, I feel like one of the torchbearers of ska punk in the 90s and had, had a couple hits. Great band. Also appeared in the film Basketball. They did. Parker and Matt Stone film. I forgot about that. <laughs> they did indeed. So I was I was a big fan. Real Big Fish was signed to Mojo Records. Yep. Real Big Fish, friends of the Daddies, they get in touch with Mojo. Mojo signs the Daddies for a two record deal. And, and Mojo is like largely a punk ska label. Yes. And they reissue Zoot Suit Riot only two months after its initial release. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now it becomes a full on major label release. Zoot Suit Riot is written in the musical styles of 1940s jump blues. And lyrically, or at least the name of the song, refers to the actual Zoot Suit Riots of the 1940s in Los Angeles, which is where some of the most significant episodes of racial violence happens in the 20th century. Uh, So we're going to go down a little history road here, which is normally your thing. Normally, I feel like you are the one who brings the real history elements to this podcast, but I'm going to take the torch from you this time around. I'm really curious to see what they're perspective or angle was writing the song we'll get to there and it's (laughs) it's a bit of like metaphor to an extent but i think it's interesting so taking a step back uh a zoot suit itself is a style is a is an outfit essentially and the zoot suit became popular out of the dance clubs of harlem and they it's like oversized suit with pinstripes yeah oversized suit pork pie hat long chain baggy pants thick-soled shoes. The idea was that the loose-fitting nature of the outfit would help accentuate the dance mm. moves. Fucking great dance look. Floor. So similar to like a, a salsa dancer wearing... Great look. Great look. Super cool. So this becomes very popular out of Harlem. It kind of spreads across the country thanks to cu- cultural pop icons such as Duke Ellington and Cap Calloway. Very cool. And one of the groups that really catches on to this trend in LA is the Mexican-Americans, the young uh, Mexican-Americans who go by the name uh, Pachucos. Okay. So this is 1940s, and there's already a well-established Mexican-American population within the L.A. area, but during World War II, with many young Americans all fighting the war, there's obviously a labor, labor shortage, and the U.S. government issues many more visas to Mexicans to come to the States to work in our factories. So the Mexican-American population... So now now you can come yes, over. Yeah, now you're, now you're allowed over. Uh, with, with this, the Mexican population really grows in the Southern California and LA area. And as you'd imagine, many whites in that area start blaming any problems that happen on the rise of the Mexicans of in the area, especially the young Mexicans who have adopted this zoot suit style. So the zoot suit now becomes a bit of a, you know, cultural icon that people can point to to say like, oh, that's the, the new youth coming through. So right. as I mentioned, they go by the name Pachucos, uh, mm-hmm. and Kind of where this really also becomes a thing is that during the war, like many things, wool becomes rationed for the troops because the troops' right. outfits or the uniforms are made out of wool. So because the zoot suits require a lot of fabric to make, they are essentially banned. Okay, But a black market arises to service people that want to keep wearing the zoot suits. And then the zoot suits become uh, regarded as unpatriotic, essentially. <laughs> So 
this is kind of the backdrop for 1942, uh. 1943, LA. And in 1942, there was a group of Pachucos who were in a brawl that resulted in a death and the media really picked it up and ran with it, blaming the Pachucos, like I said, for all the problems that were happening in LA at the time. And because this is very, this sounds familiar. It does sound very familiar. This has been played out many times in our country and, and all around the world. So because of that, that's kind of like the, the spark that kind of lights the fire and it becomes, uh, this kind of months long ongoing, you know, riot and feud between, uh, both the, the whites in the area and the Pachucos and, and the young Mexicans who live, in LA and it really touches off. There was a point in uh, later in 1942 where a group of sailors who claimed that they were taunted by some Pachucos uh, went over to East LA and began attacking anyone wearing zoot suits. Okay. And this riot and violence spread over, you know, a handful of days over a week. The military police had to come in and break it up, you know, Jesus. over this time, essentially miraculously, no one was killed, but over these days, it really, really was like a, a major, like kind of a, uh, spark for for anti-mexican racism okay uh, that that continues on there's a stereogum mm. article that talks about kind of the rise of swing culture and, and they touch on this and thought they quoted it well that the pachucos were latino kids in the 1940s many of them gang members who faced hellacious discrimination in 1940s los angeles the zoot suits they wore were a conscious rebellion against the wartime austerity that the american government demanded america wanted them to do with as little as possible so they used as much material as they possibly could in their suits, <laughs> a punk rock fuck you, decades before punk rock was even a thing. The Zoot Suit Rise of 1943 were racial hate crimes, returning American soldiers and Marines on shore leave, mercilessly beating anyone they could wearing a Zoot Suit. Fighting a war against racism and then coming home and being racist. That's the American way, right? So that's the backdrop for the song name and for the lyrics to some extent. If you read the lyrics of the song, they touch on pieces of this. I mean, it starts out with, uh, you know, two sailors in a tree, you know, looking for people to attack, essentially. But it it's not a overtly political song by any means. And it doesn't really, like, touch on a lo- many of the themes. In 2009, Steve Perry was interviewed, I guess, about the song. And he elaborated on the significance as an intended anthem, quote-unquote, for the swing theme. This is where it gets a little metaphorical. So he quote, quote saying, I guess it seemed like a Pachuco rallying cry that could double as a dance, an- dance anthem for those of us interested in swing music and culture at a time when nobody else was. It was an expression of a proud mm. marginalism. That's not that deep, but there you go. End quote. So the song, the song is, is pro Pachuco. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So it's not taking the perspective of the attackers. No, it's definitely pro okay. go, and it's it's a rallying Got cry it. for them, but it's also like a rallying cry metaphor for the swing scene at the time. He goes on to talk about the appropriation of the actual suit suits riot, and he said, "To me, the simplified duality I use as I wrote the song was: we singers were in solidarity with our countercultural ancestors, the suit suiters, and we were opposed to the sailors who represented the squares who weren't yet hip to our growing communal jive." Hmm. so you know it's like i get it i think it's cool in some ways it's also like we're stretching a little bit to say that like it's 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 we're we're uh we're definitely justifying a little appropriation here but you know swing music has always had a uh, an anti-racist undertone especially i don't know if you've seen the movie swing kids but that's like 
basically about that with Christian Bale? No, I have not seen it, but it is referenced a lot in a lot of the research I did. Yeah. Did that come out in the 90s? Yeah, early 90s. So that would that would have been like a very early Harbinger. Early 90s. So I feel like that movie, too, 100%. probably had something to do with this. But basically, it's about how there were kids that were fighting Nazism by enjoying swing music, dancing to jazz. It's kind of always been jazz was super punk in a lot of ways. 100%. Pre-punk. It, it was had like to be. the first punk. <laughs> it had to be just by the nature of, of black music and yeah you know people trying to keep them segregated and, and keep mm-hmm. them down so it had to be and i think that's where the you know obviously the zoot suits come out of the the jazz harlem scene itself and, and mm-hmm. it's and it was it was other cultures attached themselves to it and because it was a cool style they wanted to be a part of that yeah um so i do feel like the song in itself is a kind of a cool nod to a lot of the history of cultures that they are picking parts of their music from i'm sure intentionally or not plenty of people learned about the zoot suit riots from the song oh absolutely oh man there's this there's this uh there's there's this new thing on the internet where i can type in a word and it shows me all the web pages that have that word in it it's like oh well that's how i can learn about the zoot suits what the song is about this was very early i'm sure a lot of uh ask jeeves.coms were oh what is a zoot suit riot (laughs) i I just wanted to go on dogpile and search (laughs) that's a throwback Interestingly enough, due to the hurried production of the album, as we mentioned, they uh, quickly put the album together. They recorded a couple new songs, including Zoot Suit Riot. This song was recorded in one take. What? Yeah, and at the end of... Live? Yes, and at the end of the recording, you can hear Perry saying, I think I'm ready to sing it. Which he <laughs> is... He is. He's already you know, done it. Yeah, well, he, he's essentially talking to the engineer, being like, all right, I think we're ready. Like, we ran through it. I think we're ready. He's like, we already recorded it. Yeah, and the engineer, who's a friend of Perry, said, like, yo, it sounds pretty good. Like, come check it out. And they sounded great. And so they decided to keep that track, obviously. And they kept in Steve saying, I think I'm ready to sing it, as kind of like a joke, which you can hear at the end of the song. I think I'm about ready to sing it. He, he does say that if he knew it was going to be a hit, he probably would have given it two or three more riffs, probably slightly slower. It's pretty fast. But they're a punk band. It is fast. But it works. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So Mojo Records distributes a promotional demo cassette featuring two swing songs from the album, Dr. Bones and Brown Derby Jump to radio stations. I remember Brown Derby Jump. That was kind of a minor hit, I think, for them. Well, so they they send this cassette out. Zoot Suit Riot is not on this tape because the band felt the song had no commercial potential. But Mm. as swing music begins to gain real mainstream commercial momentum... Mojo chooses to reissue Zutsu Riot as a single and distributes it to modern rock stations. The Daddies, at the time, were getting ready to record a new studio album, and they like vehemently protested this move because they believed that a swing song would never receive airplay or mainstream radio, and they were concerned over losing money from its marketing. On rock radio, too. I mean, like, where do you put it? Do you put it on jazz radio? Like, totally. What's that going to do? But they, uh, Mojo persisted. Uh, and Zoot Suit Riot found regular rotation on several major stations, including K-Rock. Of course. Which helped it boost it to uh, be a single on Billboard's Hot 100 Airplay uh, and officially launching the Daddies. K-Rock is a common thread. I know. all this. I mean, one of the biggest stations in, in the country. That was the Nina. They played the Nina yeah. record, right? They're the first one? Yeah. They did. Go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. So there are two music videos for uh, this song. The 
the first was filmed in Cafe du Nord in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's still open. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It is essentially it is the the band performing a concert with a, a zoot suited Steve Perry. Uh, and there's a bunch of swing dancers that are dancing in front of the band. There are parts of it that like intercut it with various like surrealist and occult imagery. And okay. and Barry Ward, a former member of Guar, makes a cameo appearance in the video. So that is your really Guar comeback for the day. Huh. Why? I don't know. I'm sure they're friends, like you said. Like yeah, they probably are. They, yeah. they had a very similar style, theatrically at least, in the nineties. They were probably on warp tour together. Yeah. I'm sure. Well <laughs> the I believe the daddies do go on to play the warp tour, so Yeah. I think but there so, definitely too. is a connection early on between Guar. There has to be. Um, is it so is this the video I've seen? Is this like there's a lot of fish islands while they're on stage? No. Like okay. But it's similar. So the video the video that we're talking about here, the first video that they recorded, uh it played on MTV only once. And it played during the show called Twelve Angry Viewers. Did you ever watch the show? Sound, that sounds familiar. So I didn't know about this show. Let me send you the uh this must be like an intro. The idea between twelve angry viewers was that they MTV would bring in twelve random viewers and they would get to critique a series of music videos. And so clearly all these teenagers they just got from like the shores of Jersey because check out this little like uh this video here. This is kind of like a I guess must be an intro, like introducing the different uh, critiquers for this one episode. I tried to find the episode with Trey Pop and Daddies, I could not. Oh, it starts Hi, with a prodigy so, uh, song. That's from New Jersey. I'm 21 years old. <laughs> Hi, my name is. All Brian. these kids were straight out of my gosh. How you doing? I'm James. Which made sense because you know MTV like crossed the river and grabbed a bunch of kids. Two years old. Wow. But it's so 90s MTV. Okay. Okay. I mean, so ridiculous. These people seem insufferable. Yes. I'd love to know where they are now. A lot of chokers. I know. It was a, it was a thing. Yeah. Okay. So as I mentioned, the song only gets played once on MTV. So you can imagine that uh, during their episode, their video was uh, almost unanimously disapproved of <laughs> is what I read. So clearly it was not a good video. Was it the swing or was it the occult imagery? Well, I think it was the swing because the next video, as the song starts getting momentum, Mojo decides to film another music video, this time directed by acclaimed pornographic film director Gregory Dark. Now, a side note on Dark, he filmed porn videos from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s. He is credited with helping start the alt-porn scene, as well as the noir romance genre of the erotic thriller. What's uh, what's alt-porn? Is that like Suicide Girls kind of stuff? Yeah, so uh, I didn't know there was a name for this, but the alt-porn... Like punk? Yeah, I read one article that says alt-porn tends to involve Members of such subcultures as goths, punks, emos. Uh, it's often produced by small independent websites. It. it often features models with body modifications such as tattoos, piercings, scarifications, or temporary modifications to dyed hair. So I guess the time okay. is new. Dark is, uh, cool. he won accolades such as the Steven Spielberg of the softcore set and the Martin Scorsese of the erotic thriller. <laughs> In addition to the daddy's music video, his first music video was for the Melvins. Of course. Which is very 1990s yep. in style. And then he went on to do videos for Ice Cube, Exhibit, Pretty Spears, Vitamin C, Linkin Park, and others. Wow. Yeah. I, Ice Cube, I was like, okay, I'm following along. And then it got to uh, Vitamin C, and I was like, what? what I know. He here? did the graduation song and then went on to do. What? And then went on to do Linkin Park's uh, One I Step mean, Closer. 
we're going to talk about graduation song eventually. Hundred percent. Wow. But the graduation video and one step closer are complete opposite. Videos. They are, but they're both very <laughs> so, saturated. The colors are like real contrast and saturation are up all the way. It's just definitely his style. I think <laughs> yeah. in the erotic thrillers, that was probably his style. You can just kind of tell. Because even this video, like you mentioned, Fisheye Lens, it is oversaturated as well. They had his video. It's very similar. We don't need to watch it. It's You get it. It's very red. I remember it's very being very red. red. Uh, it features, it's almost the same. It's like the daddy's performing in front of a crowd of swing dancers. It looks like it's a scene from The Mask. Yes. And because there are a lot of, there's more occult imagery. There, It like always flashes to like evil clowns, a goat head being used, uh, vampire skulls, foot fetishism. Man, I'm realizing that I, I know a lot of the lyrics to this song. It was, it was on MTV like constantly. It was one of MTV's like most popular songs of that time. Oh, yeah. There's like fake blood and shit. Got it. I'd never... I mean, when the song was out, I probably haven't heard this since when it was popular, but uh, it's it's like it, doesn't get, it doesn't get replayed a lot. You don't hear on the pop station, like, remember the 90s and it's Zoot Suit Riot. But I guess I didn't know the context of the song when I was a kid, <laughs> right. but this makes sense. Like the lyrics, stay away from the, the asshole white dudes coming to kick ass. Yeah, exactly. It's a very 90s video. And then the lyrics just turn into like kind of nonsense. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's not overtly political by any means. I think they had the theme, the idea, and they were kind of running with it. It's funny that, that you were saying that it was such like a, a kind of offhand recording because it's uh, super well produced. Like, it and sounds great. For those who don't know, live recording versus like regular recording, when you normally record an album, you record every single instrument right. and They're vocal track. in separate takes. And so you are you record the guitars, you record the guitar over and over and over again, you record the drums over and over and over again, and then you put them together and you make a song. Obviously, the bands can play these songs together live, and they do it, and they go and play songs live. But to record live is everyone plays the exact same time. You have a ton of microphones. You have a ton of different you know, levels going, and you are capturing a live recording of a song, which is very different than what most of the songs you ever listen to are. So I imagine it's very difficult from a from an engineering perspective yeah and it's uh especially because all the instruments are bleeding into each other's mics uh, you're if you're trying yeah. to edit the vocal take there's horns and guitar in in that track which probably means there's not an instrumental version of this song from that session uh because the vocals bleed into uh, everything. Doubt it, yeah they chose to capitalize off of their their new fame obviously they toured uh relentlessly over the next two or three years off of this song uh Interestingly enough, it sounded like the daddies, in some ways, while they were like a, a the, the flag bearer of this new swing revival genre, they did try to like disassociate to some extent. Of course. They opted to tour with bands like the Pie Tasters, Azamalti, NoFX, Bad Religion. Uh, they did stints in the Warp Tour, which even at the time, like they didn't tour with Brian Setzer or the Squirrel Hunt Zippers. Like they didn't want to like fully lean into yeah, Stick to the punk roots. That's about probably where they felt. They felt at home. Steve Perry gave a quote in 98 saying, it's not our mission to be a swing band. I'm not a guy from the 40s. That's why we play ska and use heavy guitars. Noting elsewhere, I can't fully take us out of the retro classification, but we harp on the fact that we're contemporary music. So I think he really wanted to like be known as something unique and different. I think every artist does to some extent. Uh, but I'm sure it was hard during that specific yeah. time because everyone was like, oh, you are the swing band bringing the 1940s back and it's like no we're like we're punk rockers uh -huh. at heart but here we are 
Right. So that is the story mm-hmm. of Cherry Pop and Daddies and, and Zoot Suit Riot. It peaked at number 41 on the Hot 100. It's a fucking swing song. And it, in what year? 90? Well, that's the thing. I couldn't figure out when it actually peaked. This would have came out. The song would have came out in 97. So probably peaked in From Mojo. Yeah, it feels like that because 98, the summer uh, 98 is called the summer swing. Or even some people call it the summer of the daddies. <laughs> because... You've got the big bad booty daddy. You've got uh, the summer of the daddies. daddies. There's a couple different bands called daddies. So you have the summer of the daddies. It's 98. Oh my god! So it must have peaked during 98. But I looked at every single chart in that 98, and I couldn't find them on here. Well, I did like a you know searched suit, and I couldn't find anything. So I don't know if anyone knows how at us because I wanted to know what was number one at the time. I'm sure it was everything else that was happening in the late 90s, I and mean, you had multiple different genres happening at the same time. But this was a cultural flashpot of of the swing scene here. Jeez, pop radio 1998 is probably a mess. Like it's Green Day and Mariah Carey yeah. and Puff Daddy and Swing. Great music. mess, if you ask me. <laughs> and Shania Twain. <laughs> uh-huh. Despite being a band that's been around for for ten years at this point, they did win. Or they were nominated for best new artist in a video. Who won in the 1998 MTV Music Awards? It was one of the most played videos of the year on MTV. Uh, Natalie and Bruglia, Torn. Oh, I mean. Great song. I actually don't remember classic the video. Classic video. Yeah, I, I need to look it up. What? Oh, my God. I was in love. Yeah, I'm- actually, did you know that song's a cover? No. Yeah. It's a, it's a cover of a uh, an Australian band made that famous before she did. The Daddies, they continued to tour. They, they took a quick hiatus in 2000, oh. but returned in 2002. They have released a few albums since, most recently in 2019. What do they sound like? That doesn't do it. Are they, are they swing? I think they went back a bit more towards the punk and ska style yeah. from what I've read. But I'm sure they lean into the swing stuff. They, they do have a website, daddies.com, which is just as 90s as you would want it to be. Uh, they could probably also get a lot of money for daddies.com. They have a Instagram, and it looks like they are still performing shows they are playing october 2nd in eugene oregon so for all of our listeners in eugene oh hometown show. hometown show i think they might still live there so yeah they're still doing their thing um have they played like have they played the nostalgia fest like has riot fest booked them or like do they do like the 90s tours of like everclear and shit i, I don't know i would guess they would be very against that probably but are they are they against money? They seem very punk rock. It seems like they are. They were always doing the opposite of what was popular. Yeah, the fact that immediately they chose a tour with folks like the Pie Tasters rather than Brian Setzer, to me yeah, feels like sense. they just didn't, they didn't care. They didn't care about the money. I'm sure they made just enough money. And their labels just like guys, please, please, just go on tour with Big Bag Voodoo Daddy, and we can call it the Daddy Summer Tour. Like, come on. I mean, thankfully the the label won for their sake, won a couple of the arguments because these motherfuckers didn't even want to release the song, didn't want to release the video. This could have been real bad for them, but they, I'm sure they embrace the swing side of things, but Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have a, uh, I think we have a trend here already started by three different episodes of punk bands who accidentally made weird hit songs, like, like punk bands that were like, we're just doing our weird shit, and one of these songs ended up being catchy enough that somebody thought it was a good idea to pump a bunch of money into it. Yeah, and I wonder if that's dead, because I feel like punk bands in the 80s and 90s were like, yeah, whatever, we're going to do our thing. 
and these accidental hits came about. But I don't think punk bands start now wanting to be counterculture. They want to be they want to be a, they want to make a, a hit punk song. Yeah, well, it depends on what what style of punk we're talking about. But this song, Toot Toot Riot, uh, it was a uh, you know why was it a hit? I, just, I think it was a, a long simmering revival of the of the swing scene coming back in, and they were right place, right time to to capitalize it, and they did well. I mean, good on them to put out an album and capitalize on it though. But they you know they pushed it, which I appreciate. Definitely right place, right time, luck and timing. But this is a giant hit. It is actually featured on the first Now That's What I Call Music. What? Uh, and it's it's featured with a, a handful of songs that we will certainly talk about at some is point. Is this the first time that Now has come up? Now That's What I Call Music has come up on the podcast? It is, because we haven't done wow. a ton of songs that would have fit the mold. But if the first Now came out in 98, it was probably too soon for the Chumbawambas of the world. Or too late, I should say. Uh, but yeah, that's the that's the swing revival. Um, uh, good stuff. Hey, the, I don't think there's a mailbag. Zoot either, all so the way. I think it might be the, the only swing revival song we do because um, Jump Jive and Whale is a cover, and I didn't realize that at first. But uh, there's not really much of a story to it. It's, yeah. So that is the uh, the Cherry Pop and Daddy's baby. And I say baby because baby is what everyone calls each other. Yes, they do. They do. Uh, I used to have that poster <laughs> when I was in college at at jmu uh of them in classic oh classic yeah college poster. In, the, in the convertible and it ju- i think it, i think it just says vegas baby vegas on it oh yeah yeah, yeah. very white guy college 2000s poster <laughs> to have that's a wrap on this episode of you wanted a hit thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it good luck getting that song out of your head Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at YWAHpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.